If you would do me a favor, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a Jewish Christian living in the city of Antioch in Syria 2,000 years ago. You grew up in a very devout Jewish family there in Antioch. You were brought up to love the Lord of the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. You were raised on stories about Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, and Elijah. You were raised to love the Holy Scriptures that you have known from infancy. You've been raised to go to synagogue every Saturday, every Sabbath, to read, to hear the Word read, to hear a homily. You've learned to do good, to love your family, to love your community, community, to love the law, and to obey it with all your heart. As a young adult, you and some friends began hearing about a particular individual by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, a rabbi in Galilee who was crucified by the Romans some 30 years prior. You and your friends joined a small Jewish sect called simply The Way. They called themselves Christians. And you enjoyed the fellowship, you enjoyed the love that existed in this new congregation, But after a few years of being a part of this Jewish sect, things have begun to go south. And now it seems as if you've invested in a really bad business deal. Because of your allegiance to this rabbi, because of your confession that you believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, your business has failed. Your Jewish friends and neighbors no longer patronize it. Some of you have been ostracized by your own family And by extended family, by friends, they no longer speak to you. Over the last year or so, the civic authorities in your town, they're not rounding up and killing the Christians, not yet. You haven't resisted to the point of blood, but property has been confiscated. Some of you are made fun of publicly. There's a great deal of ridicule that you have to endure increasingly. Life has become just so much more difficult. You used to be a member of a prominent, respected family in your community. You had a great business. You made a lot of money. Life was comfortable. You lose your business. You're now working in the fields every day as a common laborer, and you're not bringing home a lot of bacon. Not that your extended family that's still Jewish wants you to eat bacon. Life's hard. Life, it's, it's, it's just hard. And there's become this little question that keeps creeping into your mind every day as you go about a life that isn't quite as comfortable and isn't as quite as secure as it once was. You start to wonder to yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth all the heartache? Is it worth all the headaches? Is it worth all of the aggravation and the harassment and the pain? Is it worth it to worship this Galilean carpenter? Is it, worth, is it worth it to worship this rabbi that you've been told is the Son of God and the Messiah that, that the Jews have been waiting for? Is it worth it when you could go back to the traditions of your fathers? You're not turning back. You're back on God. Far from it. You're just going back to the traditions of your fathers and everything will be quiet again. Some of you in the past, I'm sure, 
have gone through moments with maybe your circle of friends, maybe with your family, your parents, your siblings, your children, and there's a lot of tension. Somebody in the group isn't living the way they should. Maybe it's you. And there's that temptation there. There's that, that pull that, you know, if I just act like they all want me to act, all of this tension will go away and everything will be fine again. There's that temptation to make that small correction and I'll be at peace and I'll have security once again. That is a lot to live with. One particular Sunday, you've been working in the fields and it's a lot hotter outside than it normally is. There's been a lot more grit and grime and dirt getting under your fingernails that day. You have a headache and you're trudging home through the streets of Antioch. And the last thing that you want to do that evening is to go to the assembly of the Christians that evening in the home of a, of a nearby neighbor. All you want to do is you want to go home, you want to clean up, you want to go to bed. But something compels you, and you don't know exactly what it is, but something compels you to go to assembly anyway. You get there, you fumble through the songs, your mind wanders through the prayers. But then when it comes time for the homily, you sit up a little straighter in your chair because you recognize or you see a figure that you don't recognize. It's not every week that there is a traveling evangelist in town. You look at him, and he seems a lot older than he really is. There, there is a wisdom and a confidence, but also a pain etched into the lines of his young face. You tap a friend on the shoulder, who, who is that? And your friend responds that this is the, the young evangelist Timothy, the protege of our brother Paul who was martyred in Rome just last year. And there wasn't much in the worship service that really you know, moved you, but you recognize that something springs to life deep within your soul when Timothy sits before the congregation and says these words, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son, whom He has made the heir of all things and through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by His powerful word. And when He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I cannot begin to tell you how delighted I am that you as a congregation are studying the book of Hebrews for the next couple of months. I am so excited about that. And I'm so excited that a little less than a year ago, I was invited to come and be with you and to speak on this particular Sunday. And I want you to know that today, as we study the book of Hebrews together, I have only one goal, and it's this, to convince you that Paul didn't write Hebrews. Pausing for laughter. Still pausing. No, just kidding. I'm so excited to be with you because what I want to endeavor to do this morning is to take us on a whirlwind survey through the book of Hebrews. I promise it won't be that long. 
But what I really hope to accomplish is I want to send you away with an incredible, an incredible vision of the exalted and resurrected Lord. Because the book of Hebrews is really just about one thing, and it's about the greatness, it's about the supremacy of the Son of God, and how He is far better than everything we could ever encounter in this life. He's the best deal in town. Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ. It's about how He is the answer for all of our needs in life. He's, it's about how that He is the answer that God has been speaking, the Word that God has been speaking long before the foundations of the world. That everything that God has been seeking to accomplish in the universe has been brought together and has found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But it is also about the grand priesthood of our Lord and Savior. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised in the Lord's church. My father was a gospel preacher. I was in church every time the doors were open. I was the proverbial drug baby. I was drugged to church and drugged to class and drugged to youth group and drugged to a Christian college and drugged to church camp. I was drugged everywhere. I was raised in the church to love the Lord and love His Word and love the gospel. My daddy was a fantastic preacher. I never heard a lot of sermons on Hebrews. Now we have our token passages, do we not? My dad had a favorite sermon that he would preach on Hebrews chapter 11. We make reference oftentimes in sermons to the anchor of the soul from Hebrews chapter 6. But Hebrews is not a book that we spend that much time on. A verse here, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. A verse there, sometimes we deign to talk about Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and what it means to not be able to restore someone to repentance. Some of you perhaps have maybe even heard a sermon about sinners in the hands of an angry God, Hebrews chapter 10. But Hebrews doesn't get nearly, in my opinion, enough attention in our teaching, and in our study. And it's not even well reflected in our hymnody. When I began working on Hebrews, I tried to sit down and create a list of all the songs in our singing that have come from the book of Hebrews. And you can't count anything about faith, Hebrews 11, that's a little too easy. You know, we sing about we have an anchor that keeps the soul, okay? And we have some other similar songs. I ask that highest place be sung today because it talks about you are the great high priest. How deep the Father's love for us. Many sons being led to glory, Hebrews 2 and verse 10. But Hebrews, as a New Testament book, isn't even well represented in our hymnody as a church. Hebrews, I believe, is the grandest book in the New Testament. I think it's also the most mysterious. We have no idea who wrote it. I have my own strong opinions, but at the end of the day, we just don't know. But then again, the church has gotten along 2,000 years just fine, not knowing who wrote this majestic book. But the greatest contribution that Hebrews makes to the theology of the New Testament is the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to open our Bibles to Hebrews beginning in verse 1. And I want us to talk about the two primary ways that Jesus is presented in this book. Number one, Jesus as son. And number two, Jesus as priest. Our author begins in chapter 1 verse 1 in the passage that I just quoted. Talking about how that the, the Jesus is the last or the final word that God has been speaking to his people. And right after he talks about how that Jesus is now at the right hand of the majesty on high, enthroned as king, 
He begins talking about Jesus as son. Jesus is greater than the angels. He has a greater name than the angels. He's a son and not a servant. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. He also talks about how that Jesus has a greater nature than the angels. He is worthy to be worshipped. Uh, he, he has a, a greater uh, characteristic in that he is eternal. He's got a greater dignity. He's going to last forever. But also, Jesus enjoys a greater position than the angels. He sits at the Father's right hand. Whereas, chapter 1, verse 14, the angels are simply ministering spirits sent out on the behalf of those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews chapter 1 is about how that Jesus is far superior to the angels because he is the Son of God. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you that there are some things in Hebrews that are difficult to understand. And 2,000 years of preachers in the Lord's church have to say that, amen. There's a lot that's difficult to understand in Hebrews, but one of the reasons is because, as is true for the other epistles in the New Testament, we don't know everything there is to know about the intended audience. Have you ever walked into the room one day and your spouse was on the phone with someone and you were trying to listen to their end of the conversation and figure out who they were talking to and what they were talking about? Any of you have ever done that? Any of you ever done that? Apparently none of you have ever done that. I used to do that, okay? And that's the way it is reading the New Testament epistles. We're only listening to one side of the conversation and we're trying to figure out what's being said and, and what you're talking about. And so we don't understand if there was a particular unhealthy fascination with the superiority of the angels with these first century Christians, but our author is emphatically asserting that Jesus is greater than all of them because he is the Son of God. But then as soon as you turn to chapter 2, he uses that opportunity to say, because God is speaking to us through his dear Son, we ought to pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard, lest we slip away. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And his point in chapter 2, verse 2, is that if the old covenant of Sinai was ministered by angels, if it was given by angels, if they were the mediators of this covenant, then how much dreadful it is to ignore the covenant that has now been mediated by the Son of God. To neglect a covenant, to neglect obedience mediated by angels is one thing. To neglect a covenant mediated by the Son is an entirely different thing altogether. But in chapter 2, verse 5, our author begins talking about the solidarity of the Son of God. And his point in chapter 2, verse 5, to the end of the chapter, is that the Son of God was willing to condescend to, to earth to live among us and to experience all of the things that are apart of what it means to be a human being. For a while, God made Jesus a little lower than the angels, but now he is crowned with glory and honor. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, which I consider to be perhaps the most important verse in the entire book of Hebrews, he talked about how that God found it fitting to make the, the author and finisher, the, the, the founder, the, the perfecter of our faith, perfect through suffering. Now, there's a lot to be said about that, 
But it goes on to say that Jesus experienced all of the things that we go through as human beings so that he could ransom us from the power of grave, so that he could help the children of Abraham, and so that he could be a faithful and merciful high priest in service to God. He could, in, he could experience, he could sympathize with our weaknesses. He could help us when we are being tempted. Do you realize that even now at God's right hand, Jesus remains fully human? Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. And though Jesus is fully God, he remains fully human. And right now, Hebrews says, he is at the Father's right hand, ministering as our high priest in service to God, and he intercedes on our behalf, and I believe that he does so by name. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the Son has solidarity with the children of God, so that when we go through all of the pain and the difficulties of life, Jesus can say to the Father, I know exactly how they feel. You read through the story of Job, that righteous man that it was made to endure so much, and there are occasionally times when Job essentially shakes his fist at the sky and says to God in frustration, you don't know what it's like down here. And you know what? He had a point. Why else did he express faith that one day his Redeemer would stand upon the earth? It was not until Jesus came to this earth and walked among us that God knew on an experiential level what it's like down here. And Jesus underwent all the the entire gamut of the human experience so that he could stand before his Father and say, I know just how they feel. Chapter 3, verse 1 opens up with the exhortation to consider Jesus. And in the first six verses of chapter uh, chapter 3, our author talks about how that Jesus is a faithful son over God's house, whereas Moses is simply a faithful servant in God's house. Do you want to follow the servant or do you want to follow the son? And then in the passage we looked at in Bible class, chapter 3, verse 7, going all the way to chapter 4 and verse 13 is a long discourse about the dangers of unbelief, about the wilderness generation of Israel in the desert wandering around 40 years because they were faithless, because they refused to believe that the battle belongs to the Lord, because they found it so difficult to trust and obey And in chapter 4, our author encourages us to make sure that we enter into that Sabbath rest that awaits the people of God. He ends that section with verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and tensions of the heart, and nothing is hidden from His eyes, but we all stand naked and exposed before Him whom we must give an account to on the final day. Do not be deceived. When we stand before a holy God, we will stand before a terrifying throne of judgment because none of us can stand before the Lord without sin in our life. All have sinned, all have fallen short of His glory. All of us have been disobedient. And one day we will stand before that throne of terrifying judgment. But how great it will be if we are in Christ to see that throne of judgment turned into a throne of unmitigated mercy. 
Since we have a high priest who has now passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses and yet was tempted in every point as we are, yet he was, not, he was without sin. I remember about two, three years ago watching a show on CNN. Don Lemon, uh, Chris Cuomo were talking and uh, Mr. Lemon, the anchor there of that TV show on CNN, made an offhand statement about something else. He, made these, he said these words. You know, we know, of course, that Jesus wasn't perfect. <laughs> Say what now? I don't expect the world to get New Testament theology right, Andy. I, I, don't, I don't expect the world to do that. But folks... One of the most important assumed truths of Hebrews is that our Lord walked among us and lived a perfect life, rending bodily obedience to the Father in every way so that He could stand before His Father and intercede on our behalf. Jesus rendered to the Father what we could never render, and that was perfect obedience to the Father's will regardless of the cost. That's not something I'm going to turn loose of anytime soon. He was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. And now let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. That terrifying throne of judgment is now a throne of grace. A throne of mercy where we receive help in our time of need. And from there in chapter 5 verse 1, we are introduced to what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. Particularly there, right there in the middle of chapter 5, we find that our author, uh, he's already done it once in chapter 1, but he quotes again uh, from Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. But then he transitions to Psalm 110. And you could make an argument that the book of Hebrews is really just a sermon about two particular verses from Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 4. Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But then in Hebrews chapter 5, our author transitions to the second point of his sermon, not just Jesus as son, but Jesus as priest, when he quotes from Psalm 110 verse 4, these words, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 5 verses 7 through 10 talks about how that Jesus is qualified to be our priest in part because he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Now, I remember reading that for the first time, being very confused. What do you mean that God has learned something? I thought God knew everything. The author of Hebrews is talking about experiencing something for the first time. Do you realize that before Jesus came to earth and lived among us, God had never submitted to anyone? And yet God in the flesh, our Lord and Savior, had to experience what it's like to submit to the will of another. He was obedient to the Father's will. Chapter 5.11 is another warning passage that runs all the way to chapter 6 and verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 9, our author, his tone changes again to encouraging his audience to remind them of the faithfulness of their heavenly Father. Chapter 6, 13 through 20. And it is that faithfulness, it is that ministry that Jesus is now engaged in at the Father's right hand that is the anchor of our soul, sure and steadfast. And I want to directly connect what he's really saying to the circumstances of his audience. You have all kinds of untold heartache and, and head Headaches, trials, and difficulties, and temptations. 
because you want to turn your back on Jesus and go back to Moses. And yet your allegiance to Jesus and the ministry that he's engaged in right now on your behalf is the one thing that is holding you sure and steadfast like an anchor, not plunged into the depths of the ocean, but hurled upward behind the curtain of heaven to the right hand of the Father. You are tethered to the throne of God because of the high priestly ministry of your Savior who has loved you since the four, the foundations of the world. You are tethered to God by Jesus. You don't want to turn your back on that. Chapter 7 is about the mysterious Melchizedek. I wish we had time to go into that chapter. But essentially our author uses the story of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 to make these three points. That you have a perfect, promised, permanent high priest. Chapter 8 verse 1. This is what we've been saying all along. And you know there's that deacon in the audience getting his wristwatch going, well, it's about time. Chapter 8, verse 1, what we've been saying all along is we have such a high priest. Chapter 8 is about the benefits of this new covenant that you and I now enjoy. But right at the end of chapter 8, as he's quoting from Jeremiah about this new covenant that God had been talking about all along, one of the things he says about this new covenant, something that I never really fully understood and I don't fully understand it now, but I do better than I used to. I appreciate it a lot more. A detail about this new covenant. That unlike in the old, where people's sins were forgiven. I, when I was growing up, I heard often that the Old Testament, there was no forgiveness of sins. That's not true. There was forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament. But here's the difference. It's only under the new covenant that our sins are not only forgiven, but they're also completely forgotten. In chapter 9 and half of 10, that's what our author talks about. About how that Jesus' priestly ministry, His atoning work on the cross, He has brought to us a cleansing of the conscience so that we might serve the living God. Especially the latter part of chapter 9 is about how incredibly precious the blood of Jesus is. Because without a violent shedding of blood, there has never been a possibility for sins to be forgiven. All throughout the old law, all those animals that were sacrificed, all those animals that were slaughtered, all those animals that were butchered, it was to teach the Israelites that without the violent taking of life, sins cannot be forgiven. And when the Hebrew writer says to his audience, the precious blood of Jesus has made atonement for your sins once and for all, he's wanting them to appreciate the fact that the blood of Jesus is an incredibly precious thing. In the first part of chapter 10, he's wanting them to understand. I have come to do your will, O God, he quotes from Psalm. Jesus came to render bodily obedience to the Father, perfect bodily obedience to the Father, so that he could give God what we've never been able to give, that perfect obedience to the will of God. And his perfect obedience qualifies him to stand in our place before the Father and to intercede. And when we come to chapter 10, verse 19, we receive from Hebrews three imperatives based on everything he's been saying. Can I confess something to y'all? I'm pretty dumb. I'm from Mississippi, and I was homeschooled. I tell people to manage their expectations for my intelligence. I spent almost four years writing on Hebrews, 
And Andy, when I was thinking about this, this atoning work and, and all of the really tricky stuff to digest in chapters 9 and 10, I kept thinking, how in the world am I going to make this relevant and applicable to the people of God? How am I going to get them to understand that this is what they need to do with this information? How in the, where in the world in this passage is the whole take the message and apply it to their lives? And then I got to chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, realized... Author Hebrews did it for me. Since we are able to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and because we have a great high priest over the house of God, he gives us three imperatives beginning in verse 22. Number one, let us draw near. Friends, brethren, some of you have been holding Jesus at arm's length. You're faithful to services. You do the things you know you need to do to be a good Christian. But you have never enjoyed an intimacy with the Lord that Hebrews talks about. Because it's just a little bit more comfortable to keep everything at arm's length. When God's been beckoning you for so long to draw near. You think through the entire Old Testament... You think all the times he showed up and everyone is just passing out in abject fear. And the first thing God had to say when he arrived on the scene was, Do not be afraid. God is beckoning us in Jesus Christ to draw near to the throne of grace and to create an intimacy with him that can sustain us through the most difficult seasons of our life. Number two, he says in verse 23, Let us hold Fast our confession, for he who promised is faithful. You and I can have conversations about the direction this country, this world is headed. We may, may not be happy with the government, but I still think it's going to be a while before we're being hauled away from our homes and our places of worship and crucified, beheaded, chopped down, beaten to death we got a little ways to go. Sometimes some of our friends like to play the martyr complex. I'm just giving you my opinion. I think we got a little ways to go. But you don't have to be in grave danger of being martyred for your faith to be tempted to turn loose of your confession. Am I right? Because Satan assaults you every day with temptations of various kinds. And it is so difficult in those moments to double down on Jesus. Your spouse is going through some difficulties and they're not just able to be the spouse that they need to be, they want to be. Health issues, spiritual issues, job issues, financial issues. And you love your spouse but you have needs. And it's the first temptation of Jesus, tempted to turn those stones into bread. You're tempted to meet those needs in illegitimate ways. And it's really hard to hold on to your confession that you believe Jesus is your master and you're going to do whatever he says. It's really hard sometimes to be obedient when you know that in your line of work, in your business, in your career, there are some things you got to do just to get things done. 
it's really hard to hold fast your confession. There are untold number of ways that we are assaulted on a daily basis to turn loose of our confession. Some of you are dealing with grief and tragedy and sorrow that I can't begin to imagine. I buried my beloved father when I was 19. No one should preach their father's funeral when they're 19 years old. I lost my son when I was 30 and he was 2. No one should preach their child's funeral at 30. I lost my wife and my other children because of my selfish sin. It's my fault. I have dealt with so much loss in my life, and yet there are some of you in this room this morning, if you told me your story, I just don't know how you feel. But I am begging you to hold fast your confession. But finally, in verses 24 and 25, our author says, Let us continue to stir up one another to love and good works. And do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more as you see the day approaching. If there has ever been a Christian who wanted the Christian life to be led in isolation, it's me. I am a horrible introvert. Now, I'm going to glad hand and chat with many of you afterwards, and we're going to talk about wonderful things, and, and, I, and I'm going to try really hard to be a people person. I am not an extrovert. I would love it if the Christian life could be lived in isolation, because sometimes, sometimes I just, I, I, I can't quite take large crowds. But you know what I found? It can't. It just can't. The Christian life cannot be led in isolation. We need each other for that constant encouragement. Let us stir one another up for love and good works. And do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But that's not Hebrews' final vision of the exalted, resurrected Lord. At the very end of chapter 12, we've been given a grand vision of what the kingdom is like. You have not come to the mountain that cannot be touched, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. You've come to angels and festal gathering. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, God the judge of all, and Jesus, the blood of his covenant, the blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. But then he says, do not refuse him who is speaking. And that goes all the way back to chapter 1. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his dear son. It goes back to chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Because the one speaking one day, he is going to rend the heavens and the earth. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And everything is going to dissolve except the things that remain. Let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I love it when he talks about the things that remain in that passage. It's the Greek word minnow. It's a very simple Greek word. It means to remain, to continue, to exist. Uh, it talks about, it's a word that means kind of staying power or, or longevity. And it's the same word he used in chapter 7 when he talked about how that Jesus continues forever as our high priest. He talks about the church 
the kingdom continuing. Folks, let me tell you something. You may watch the news. You may read articles. You may hear things on social media. And you are scared to death for the future of the Lord's church. Shame on you. Because Hebrews reminds us that as long as we have a Christ, as long as the church has a Christ, she has a future. And it's not an issue of whether or not we're going to survive. It's not an issue of whether we're going to continue on. It's not an issue of whether or not we are going to remain. The issue is, are we going to remain faithful? Because he talks about how that Jesus continues forever. And he talks about how that the kingdom is going to continue forever. But then he turns immediately to chapter 13 and verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. We have no power over whether Jesus will continue. He's going to. We have no power over whether the church is going to continue. It will. We do have something to do about whether or not brotherly love continues. The issue is not, will we remain? The issue is not, will we survive? The issue is, will we be faithful? Will we continue in love and good works? Maybe you're here this morning and you are not a Christian. The Bible simply says that if you're willing to put your faith in Jesus Christ, turn from your sins and be buried with Him in the waters of baptism, you can leave here as an heir of eternal life, looking forward to an incredible reward that we will receive one day from our Father. There's a lot of you in this auditorium right now, and you're about to turn loose of your confession. Do not turn your back on so great a reward. You're struggling with things in your personal life. We're going to sing a song to encourage you in a moment. I imagine you come forward, you ask for prayers. If you can't bring yourself to do that today, can I ask a favor? Can I, can I, can I ask you all a favor? Will you come look me up, come, come hunt me down? Let's talk one-on-one. Let me pray with you. Let me share with you from Hebrews the power of the fact that right now your Jesus is at the Father's right hand and he's using your name and he's saying he needs some help. She needs your mercy. Be kind to them. Some of you are dealing with things in your life and you know that your life is not what it should be. Your relationship with the Lord is not what it should be. And I'm begging you as I did in Bible class today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Here's what I want for you. Here's what I so desperately want for you. There is coming a day in your future, according to Hebrews 9.27, is appointed a man to die once and then judgment. There is coming a day in your life when your eyes will close in death, your body will go still. And as was true for the first martyr Stephen in the book of Acts, Hebrews talks so much in chapters 9 and 10 about how that Jesus now is actually seated at the Father's right hand because His atoning work is finished and you sit down when the job is done. But when Stephen looked into heaven in his final moments, he saw a vision of the Son of God standing as if to honor that servant who was about to come home. And the reason that I encourage and the reason that I exhort and the reason I am begging you to get your business done with Jesus today is because when the day comes when your eyes close in death, 
I am begging the Lord that He give you one final vision of Him standing, beckoning you home. We're going to sing a song. We're going to encourage you to trust and obey. And if you're not doing that this morning, I hope that you'll do what's necessary before it's too late as we stand and sing to encourage you.